I bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make every great path straight. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In this broadcast, we shall be drawing the curtain on our study on the doctrine of or the teachings on baptisms. When a child is born and the mother takes the child home, the mother does that so that the child is integrated into the family. The child is weaned, nurtured, disciplined, and matured. All of this is done so as to make that child a responsible member of society, contributing his own quota and making society better. If that child is poorly brought up, is poorly trained, is not raised as he should be, he becomes a problem to society, a disgrace and an embarrassment to his family. Christendom is similar to that. Let us do a brief overview of some passages of scripture. Luke chapter 14, and I'm going to read from verse 25 to 33. Now great multitudes went with him, that is with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks condition of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So we see that Christianity is about being a disciple and that being a disciple is about being willing and ready to forsake all. I read another passage of scripture, Hebrews chapter 10. And all this will tie into what we're going to discuss as we round up on the teachings on baptisms. Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 32 to 39. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. As we go on in our discussion, some of these scriptures will make references to them. In 2 Peter chapter 1, reading from verse 1 to 4, Simon Peter, a born servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. All things are provided 
Just like the child is integrating the family, the child is giving everything that that child needs to become who that child should become. So God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that is, who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So the promises of God to us are that we are going to be partakers of his divine nature. And that we're going to be delivered, as it were, from the corruption of the world. All this have a bearing on what we want to discuss. Now, baptisms in Christendom are like rites of passage. Like the child born into a family goes through the rites of passage. He's brought in, he's welcomed by his siblings, even though he's too tiny to understand what is going on. But he's accepted as part of society. He's put into that family. He has a position in the family, either the firstborn, the thirdborn, the lastborn, depending on the number of children. He has a place in that family. He's taught about family values and the values of society. He's taught to be a part of society, a disciplined part of society, one that will make society better, not one that will destroy society. He becomes an embarrassment to his family when he's unable to do that. So in the same way, baptism in Christendom is like the rites of passage that every Christian must experience in his walk with God to raise him up, to make him a member of the kingdom of God, a member that will not bring embarrassment to God the Father. So upon being born again, the Christian is placed into the body of Christ, globally and locally, where he is nurtured and matured, and where at the appropriate time, he becomes one who will nurture and mature others. And that is what baptism into the body seeks to establish. We called it a baptism of placement. At the appropriate time, when the Christian is ready to serve, he is empowered from above. Otherwise, his service will be in the flesh. And anything we do in the flesh is an abomination to God and unacceptable by him. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit is poured upon us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this will turn to be the baptism of power, baptism that enables us to serve. From the moment the Christian is born again and put into the body, he goes through a continual process of purging, pruning, purifying, proving, perfecting, patterning, and of being presented to the Father for acceptable service. This is the baptism with fire, the baptism of process, and this is a continual process. And for all this, the Christian must unequivocally, publicly declare his citizenship of heaven and his allegiance to the Godhead, to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. By doing this, the Christian is declaring to the world and Satan that he is disengaging from them. He has nothing to do with them. Fought with is over. And he is declaring to the church and to the Godhead that he belongs to Christ. He belongs to the Godhead. That he is bound to them, to their leadership, and will henceforth listen and obey their commands, instruction, and direction. This is Christian baptism, what I call public profession or public declaration of allegiance to the Godhead and to the kingdom. In the early church, Roman soldiers, were told, attended Christian baptisms, not to be baptized, but to take down the names of those people who were being water baptized. As they came out from the water, they documented their names. Because by that baptism, they were declaring that they owed no allegiance to the Roman emperor. They owed no allegiance to the Roman empire. They were done with the world. They were done with Rome. They now belong to a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And God was the head of that kingdom. Their allegiance was to God. Since what they were doing as Christians was declaring allegiance 
to another kingdom and to another God, they could no longer expect the protection and the privilege of Rome. That's what it meant. And people went to those baptisms. They were stripped off of their rights. That's what Paul was writing in Hebrews chapter 10 that we read in verse 22. He says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproach and tribulation, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. They were making it clear that they were citizens of heaven. And so they were stripped of every right they had here on the earth. They were dispossessed of their properties. Anybody could take their properties because they were no longer citizens. They no longer had property rights. They were no longer Roman citizens. They were not even slaves of Rome anymore. They were considered worse than Roman slaves, which meant they were nothing. And so they could be killed at will and there would be no consequence to whoever killed them. In fact, the person killing a Christian in those days was considered a hero. Yet, people continued to be born again and to be baptized. They understood certain things as believers, that they were done with the world. They had come into a new kingdom. They had come into a new family. They were now citizens of a new kingdom. And they had a new leader, a new emperor, if you can use that expression. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. The governor among the nations. He governed them. He commanded them. He instructed them. He led them. Whatever he said was what mattered. In fact, it is recorded that an estimated 30 million Christians were killed up till about 330 AD or thereabout. Included in that list were James, the brother of John, Simon Peter, Paul, Thomas, Philip, Andrew, and so on and so forth. All the apostles that we know of, John the elder, all of them were included in that number. They had been martyred for what they believed. What was it that they believed? Why was their faith so manifest and ours not? Because they had an understanding of what they were getting into. We've said this, that you cannot say you are baptized as a Christian when you don't even know what you are doing, when you have not sat down first to take stock. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ was saying in Luke chapter 14 that we read earlier. He saw a horde of people following him. You know, we get excited when we see people coming to church. We are happy. But that was not how it was in those days. The Bible says that when John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those people coming to his baptism, he said, who has warned you, you brood of vipers? He wasn't taking it patient with them at all. But we get excited. Oh, this president came to our church. The minister came to our church. The governor was in our church. What does that mean? What does it really mean? These people go back to their stations of office and perform iniquitous things. And we are here gloating that they came to our church. What does it really mean? Where's the commitment? So the Lord Jesus Christ, when he saw that crowd, he turned around and said to them, let me tell you something. All of you are following me. If you are not ready to hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your siblings, yes, including your own life, you cannot be my disciple. I'm sure they were all stunned. He said, and then, if you are also not willing to carry your cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Carrying the cross in Roman times was a sign of a man going to his execution. So he was saying, if you are not ready to die, you cannot be my disciple. If you are not ready to follow in my steps, do the things I ask you to do. You cannot be my disciple. And then he now goes and says, which one of you wanting to build a house does not first sit down and count the cost? Today we have quantity surveyors who give us the bill of quantities for buildings. 
that we want to embark on and say this is what it's going to cost foundation this this and then we have the builders themselves who give us a time frame the quantity surveyors put in so many considerations when they do their costing we now know the cost of the building the question is can i do it and so the lord is saying which one of you will not sit down first and take account so that you don't get to the foundation and then you can't finish it and people start saying look at this man he started building he can't finish it there are so many abandoned half constructed buildings all over the place why people did not count the cost or they did not take cognizance of a downturn in the economy maybe they started when they had so much money and they projected on the economic environment being the same if not better but then there's a downturn and they cannot finish what they started the lord is saying to you are you a christian sit down and count the cost there is a sacrifice that is required it will cost you even your life today we find many church leaders and even christians who are fighting against persecution somebody wrote once and said any religion that requires government intervention to protect it cannot be a true religion i believe that statement if God is God, then let God fight for his church. The Lord Jesus Christ made it clear. He said, upon this rock, the truth of him being the son of the living God, the truth of him being the savior of the world, upon this rock will I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is the one in charge of his church. I recall in the book of Judges, when Gideon was told to go and break down the altar of Baal, and he did it at night. And when they woke up in the morning and saw that the altar of Baal had been destroyed, and they made inquiry, somebody ratted Gideon out and said it was Gideon who did it. And they wanted to stone Gideon. Gideon's father stood and said, if Baal is a god, let him kill Gideon. Who are you to want to kill Gideon? It is when you don't have that god that you beckon on government to come and help you. That is when you look up to governments to come and help you. And then the politicians take advantage of that and lie to you. And you are there propounding them, propagating rubbish. Things that are not true. Why? Because we have not counted the cost yet. Unfortunately, today, there's a renouncing of Christ on a daily basis. Many pastors have renounced Christ. They are preaching heresy from the pulpit. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul wrote about this from verse 17. He said, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Many, many people preaching today, many so-called pastors today are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They are not in tune with what God is doing. Their focus is on man. Their focus is on pleasure. Their focus is on enjoyment. Whose end is destruction? Whose God is their belly? And whose glory is their shame? Who set their mind on earthly things? They are fleshly. They are worldly. Baptism doesn't mean anything to these people. So it is not so much you're being dunked in water. It is what it means to you. It is the conviction that you have in your heart. That what you are doing is what you should be doing. In verse 20 it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of us are waiting today, the Lord Jesus Christ told us. He said, Because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. There is iniquity abounding. When they say iniquity is abounding, it means it's all over the place. And I'm not talking of the iniquity of wickedness, of people being naked and homosexuality. No, no, no. That's not what we're talking about. We're speaking of iniquity in the church. I don't want to talk about those things. But you see them every day. Part of the iniquity in the church is how preachers have left the doctrine of salvation by faith and are now becoming Harvard professors. Teaching on how you can become something, do business, make money, become great. Where is that in the gospel? Nobody is teaching us sacrifice anymore. Nobody is teaching us that we should give up all for Christ. 
And when they teach about evangelism, it is to fill their churches. It is their church. It's not the church of Christ. There's a saying, something to the effect that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The church was planted and nourished and flourished on the blood of martyrs. And I wonder what church we are going to leave behind. The doctrine of baptism, the teaching about baptisms, is a teaching about a true Christian experience as distinct from living according to the world. Let's go as I said. They are in the world, but not of the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. When Pontius Pilate was asking the Lord, don't you know that I have the power to release you? He said, don't go in that direction. It's not in your power. It's God that has allowed this thing to happen. I have angels at my command and I can ask them and they will just move everything now. He said, but that is not the goal. My kingdom is not of this world. We don't act that way. We don't carry placard. We don't fight. We don't protest. In the kingdom of God. We don't. As a matter of fact, the Christian is considered a mumu. That is what he is. Is a mumu. That's why the Lord Jesus says, if they slap you on the right, turn the left cheek. If they take something from you, I'll give them more. If they force you to carry something for one mile, go a second mile. We are like fools. Bible says we are like sheep being led to the slaughter. That is what Christianity is. Talking about Christian baptism. John G. Lake said, Christian baptism was a Christian's enlistment in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the supreme act of his whole life. It was the thing for which he had sacrificed everything else. He was ready from that minute to take all the sorrows and all the oppressions and everything else that comes to a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But one thing was settled before the world, before demons and angels, and before Almighty God. He had, by that public act, declared himself a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he boldly went out as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, marked and branded and stamped as a disciple of Jesus Christ, just as literally as the man who puts on a soldier's uniform. He had entered into an army. You are enlisted into an army. I don't hear those things anymore. When I was a young believer, they taught us that you are in a war. You are in a battle. You are to fight the good fight of faith. We don't hear those teachings anymore. We don't hear people encouraging us to fight. To tell us that we are fighting a battle. And the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We are not fighting with physical weapons. The Bible speaks about the whole armor of God. And it's not about metals and other things. No, it's talking about truth. About righteousness. About faith. About salvation. About the word of God. And so on and so forth. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3 and 4. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. These were the things that they were taught, that we have been taught. You therefore must endure hardship. We must be ready to endure hardship. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 24 verse 10. It says, even in the day of adversity, you faint. Your strength is small. Adversity will come to us. It is part of the gospel. This is baptism with fire. Why do we go to church and pray against this? They say, oh, we don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. It will come to test you, to prove you of what sort you are. In verse 4 it says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You are no longer to be focusing on the world, wanting to satisfy your lusts and your desires. I've read this before, but it bears repetition. Hebrews chapter 11. I just read a few portions concerning Moses. From verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused the privilege that will come with royalty, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God 
than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward, that is in eternity. By faith, he forsook Egypt. We must forsake Egypt. Not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses had all the privileges of this world before him. But he said, no, these are the fleeting pleasures of sin. They are passing away. I would rather suffer for Christ and receive the recompense, the reward in eternity. We are no longer to be entangled with the world. Let me read another passage of scripture in Colossians chapter 3 from verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All this world of glory, 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 as if it is here. No, the glory is in eternity when we are dead. Christ in you is that hope that you will be glorified in eternity. Not that you will gain things here on the earth. We live for God henceforth. Again, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul in verse 21 writes, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As I live here on the earth, I live for God. Not for man, not for self, not for what I will eat, but for God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, the Bible says, And he died, that is Jesus Christ died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This is Christianity. It is for this purpose that we go to baptism. Yes, we are baptized into the body. We don't know much about that. It is done by the Spirit. It is a spiritual act. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit because we have work to be done. And many of us get excited because now we can speak in tongues. Yet the fruit of the Spirit is not formed in us. Then we come to the baptism with fire, which is where the fruit is to be formed. Where we go through the grill, where the Spirit of God in us is working, sanctifying, purifying, purging, removing, patterning, grilling us, passing us through fire, through challenges of life, tribulations and trials to shape us as we ought to, to be in conformity with Christ. We go through that. Sometimes we murmur and complain and run, jump out. And our Christianity is useless. You can't do anything about that. But the one thing that we are to do, which is public, that declaration in Christian baptism of allegiance to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, of submission to them, to be yielded to them, that we have handed over our lives to them, that we are bound to them, to do with us as they desire. We no longer have a desire to do our will. The truth of the matter is that when you become born again, your will is still intact. God does not change it. He doesn't touch it. He is now for you to submit that will to him and say, Lord, take my will. Give me your will. It's your will I want to do henceforth. So we can pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My preoccupation as a Christian is not who is in power. It's not how much money I have. It's not what I'm doing, but what is the will of God for me? What is it that God wants me to do? Imagine Saul of Tarsus when the first day he met with the Lord on that Damascus road. As he was on the ground, he asked the Lord, what would you have me to do? That is how we are supposed to live our lives. What would you have me to do? Baptism is the reality of that. It brings us to that place where we must understand that we belong to a family, the family of God. That we are no longer who we were. Yes, we were, but no longer. We are now citizens of heaven. We are now children of the Most High God. We are now a part of the building called the church. And we have a head, Jesus Christ. Not the general overseer, not the bishop, Jesus Christ. 
Our general overseers, our bishops, our pastors, our delegates of the Lord Jesus Christ to teach us not to control our lives, but to teach us the word of God, to make us able to hear him, to bring us to the place where we are taught to listen to God and receive his instruction. Not the one that we are herded by wolves in sheep's clothing and being told that we must listen to them. No, we are to be taught to listen to God, to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow his leading. And that at the end of it all, we will be children of the most high God. Doing the bidding of the Father. How do we live in the world? Are we supposed to stop walking and all of us be herded into the church? No, in the place where you are working, God has a job for you there. It is God who now decides where you, where you are to be. Are you to teach in the university? Are you to work in an oil company? Are you to work as a clerk? Are you to work as a driver? He's the one who decides where you work. It's not about how much money you are being paid or the glamour of the job. It's about the pulpit where God has placed you. We are not all going to stand in front of a pulpit. We are not all going to be pastors of a church. But we are going to have a place where we will do our service to God. The baptism into the body, yes, we mentioned it's global and local. It has to do with the church. However, in that same way, you can be picked up by God and dumped somewhere. You can be put in the desert. It can be arranged for war to come and you are captured and taken as a slave into a home where you will be able to preach Christ. You recall the young girl who was captured when Naaman had gone to raid in Israel. He's in 2 Kings chapter 5. I can imagine how the parents of that girl would have been weeping. But God had a plan. It was to make Naaman to come and know him. The girl got to that house and saw this powerful general, a leper. She couldn't believe it. He said, ah, madam, don't you know that there is a God in Israel and that your husband's matter can be dealt with by that God? He's in Israel. Their understanding was to write a letter to the king of Israel and say, cure this man. Then the king went mad. He said, look at these people trying to look for a fight again. Elisha heard of it and said, send that fellow to me. When Naaman came, Elisha sent a message to him and said, tell him, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman was offended. He said he thought that the man would come and wave hands or do something. The soldiers begged him and said, oh God, if they had told you to do something very you would go. If they say go and capture nations, you go and capture nations. He's just asking you to go and dunk yourself inside water seven times. Forget about Pafa and Abana that we have in our It's Jordan they say you should go to. Go there. They pleaded with him. He went. Went in seven times. Upon coming out, his leprosy was killed. Why? Because a girl was captured. Today, you know, we make so much noise. And I find people who say they are Christians making that noise. So they've captured you. Where is the testimony of Christ in that place of captivity? I know that it's painful. But in that place of captivity, where is it? If you understand it, you would know that God has put you in that place for a purpose. These teachings on going to get money have had pastors. And I can't understand it. Talking about if you want favor from God, give. That is a criminal speaking. That's not the word of God. If you want healing from God, give. Where did they come up with that? Where did you find in scripture where the Lord Jesus Christ asked people to give before he healed them? Even after he healed them that he said give to him. Where did you find in scripture where the apostles did anything like that? But we have a bunch of criminals praying themselves as pastors. May God have mercy on the apostles. And I pray that God will bring them to the place of repentance very quickly before it's too late for them. For us, we need to go and sit down and begin to count the cost of Christianity. You may have been water baptized. You don't need to do it again. But understand the implication that you have sworn allegiance to God. And if you are not following him, you are becoming a disloyal citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The world may applaud you, but heaven does not applaud you. Very soon, when you leave this earth, and you are going to leave this earth, you will discover that there is no place for you in the kingdom of God. We are living as if we are not going to die. Many of us are living as if the whole earth is all that we have. 
I've seen 70 year olds, 80 year olds who are behaving as if they will never die. And you will die one day. Longevity does not mean that God is with you. No. Jesus Christ died at 33. My prayer is that we'll understand baptism not as just a ceremonial thing, but as an experience that we live out with understanding, knowing that we have sworn allegiance to Almighty God. By the grace of God, next week we'll move on to the fourth doctrine, which is the teachings on the laying on of hands. Until then, God bless you.